Our aim is to share our journey with God. Now, the Apostle Paul did that. If you read through his story and read through his epistles, from time to time he turned to his experience and to tell about what God had done in his life, his failures, and also the great joy he had of serving God. And for Glad and myself, it's now 51 years since we first went out to India. And in those 51 years, this thought and this theme has been there before us. We have put our hope in the living God. And the fact that our God is the living God is something that sustains us and helps us in any given situation because He's the God who loves, who cares, who enables, who directs, who opens and shuts doors and He protects us and marvelously provides for us and the list could go on and on and on because that's the kind of God He is. You see, these verses have been ringing in my heart for very many years. The last verse of Psalm 138 says, The Lord will work out His plans for my life. And then it says, Your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. So I can be absolutely confident that in the events that happen in my life, the plans that happen and are worked out are always on the basis of God's faithful love. And it goes on to say in Psalm 139, O oh Lord, you both precede me. You're always there ahead of me in my life. But also you follow me through my life. And then the lovely scripture which says, you place your hand of blessing upon my head. That's been our experience. But then when you stop to think about it, young people, and older people too, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was already recorded in your book. Isn't that an amazing statement? For you to look back at your life, the mistakes you've made, the things that have happened to you as they've happened to us, are already recorded in God's book. Every moment of my life has been laid out before a single day has passed. Now, we can only even grasp what that means for you and for me in our life. And that's what I want to share with you. This is not about me. It's about God, our living God, and the kind of God He is, who holds you and holds me within the palm of His hand. And that there's no mistakes with God. He never makes mistakes. And we can absolutely confidently trust Him. And that's what Vlad and I have been able to do all of these years. And then Paul speaks about his life as he was in prison in Rome and things were pretty bleak for him. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really had happened or served to advance the gospel. And Vlad and I look back over these 50 years or more and we can see how God's had His hand on us and what He's doing. Now, most of you don't know Glad very well. Her father died when she was four. Her mother has six children, and Glad hardly remembers her dad. But she does remember her mum, of course, very, very well, who was a battler, someone who really, really struggled. In fact, she came to know the Lord, mum did, at Ashgrove Church. <laughs> and it's because of Lindsay's dad 
and another man called, we call Pop Mehmet, who gathered up the children in and around that area and took them to a park and had a Sunday school. And Glad's mum, Mrs. Shelford, saw these kids in the park on a really hot and difficult day and she went across to Lindsay's dad and Popman and says, bring the children in under my house. And from that moment on, the Sunday school was under their house. The end result was that Mrs. Shelford tried to bring up six kids and as they got old and difficult, it was suggested to her that she goes to Silky Oaks. That's a children's home in Manly, run by the, the Christian Assemblies. And she would do the laundry work there, and the kids would grow up in Silky Oaks. Now that had good things, but it had bad things. For glad, bad memories. Things happened there that have really scarred her in some ways. But what it did was bring her to Manly. God was in that. I wasn't far away. <laughs> my family, our lives were dictated by my older brother. You can't see very well, the screen is really not all that good, but that's my older brother there. His name is Lester. He died when he was 13. But our lives were dictated by him because he had cirrhosis of the liver. And he was so sick that whatever happened, it had to be what was best for Lester. I was born in the middle of the war. My first memory is of an air raid siren. And my mum had said to us, if ever you hear this siren, wah, wah, whatever noise a siren makes, then run in underneath the house. We were renting an old Queenslander house at Indrapilly. And so we ran in under that. That's my first memory. Because of Lester's case, a lot of different things happened. My family moved up to Kui and Bardi, which is where the Somerset Dam is, near there. And they share farmed for a while, but it was a rotten year. Then we moved down to Wynnum, Manly, when I was seven. It was my seventh birthday. And I had expectations of getting something as a birthday present, but I was told my birthday present was to go back to Wynnum, to live in Wynnum. And as a family, we lived in a barn for about three years, and Lester died while we lived in the barn. It was really tough. I remember very distinctly the day he died. But remember, God's in all of this. So we began to go to the Wynnum Gospel Chapel, and guess who was at the Wynnum Gospel Chapel? That little girl. Now, I wasn't interested in the little girl. It was her brother that I was interested in. That's the chap there in the nice suit. Alfie. He is my friend. A couple of months older than me, and he and another lad, we used to be the three musketeers. We rode bikes everywhere together. We did all sorts of stuff together. And Glad was always in the background. But when you've heard me tell this story on 60 Minutes, that when she was 16 and I was 17, we had a special conference meeting down at Wynnum. It used to be in the School of Arts at Wynnum, and it was a regular Easter convention, we called it. And she turned up in this A-line uh, <laughs> dress. And 
I fell in love with her. She was 16, I was 17. I mean, I, I had known her as the little sister. But now suddenly she was my girl. And she's been my girl ever since. For my life, there was a critical moment. And some of you who've been at schools where I've been have heard me tell. That when I was a smart aleck teenager, my mum used to cook at the camp down at Billy Heads on a regular basis. And Mrs. Shelford used to go down and help her, so their family connection was there. When I was such a smart aleck teenager, we went down to Fingal, and on one occasion there were some sand hills there in Fingal, and I, with a lad, a friend, began to dig a cave into the side of this, um, this sand hill, along with others doing the same. And we were winning, we had to. And as we were winning, we got to the point where we couldn't reach the sand anymore. So I got inside the cave and I was shoveling out the sand and my friend was pulling it out and the little girl ran over the top and the inevitable happened and it all collapsed in on top of me. I was completely, utterly... Well, I couldn't move my fingers. I couldn't do a thing. Couldn't breathe, couldn't move, couldn't, and I did the only thing I could do, and that was cry out to God. If you save my life, I will serve you forever. For me, that was the critical moment in my life. That's the, the point I always go back to, that day when I said, my life belongs to God. He saved my life. He spared me death from that cave, and I mean, what a stupid thing for a teenager to do. Teenagers sometimes do stupid things. And, and the interesting thing is, here is God overruling my stupidity. That's the lovely thing about God. I can make the most stupid, stupid mistake, but I've got a God who knows that I'm going to do something as stupid as that. And because we've read what we read, that each moment is recorded in God's book, God had it all worked out. And my cry to God was something from my heart. And I always understood very clearly what Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says. If you dare to make a vow to God, be very sure to keep that vow. Don't you dare break a vow or a promise that you've made to God. So that was certainly the critical moment in my life. So from that moment on, everything in my thinking was, how can I prepare to serve God? I began to do evening Bible classes uh, when Ian Irvine, one of our Bible teachers in, in Queensland, was running an a, a evening Emmaus Bible School kind of evening classes, I went to all of those along with Don Fleming and Ken Newton and a few of us were keen to really get hold of the Word of God. But then the government intervened, but not before I had taken Glad out on our first date. And uh, that was to the exhibition ground, and I can even held a hand if you... Uh, would allow me to do so. It was, it was just something really special for us to go out on our first date. And she was so sweet. She made that bolerone. I've never forgotten uh, the pride that she felt. I made this. I made this. When you grew up at Silky Oaks in a children's home, there are a lot of normal things that girls could do they didn't do or couldn't do because they never had that kind of opportunity. But then the government says, come and do national service. Now, I had no choice. As soon as I turned 17, I had to put my name in a register. Everybody did in my day. And when your name went into the register, if your birthday was taken out of the box, then you did national service or you were called up to do national service. 
And so I did national service and I thought to myself, well, God wants me to be disciplined and I was, God wants me to, and yet in the, my heart always I was thinking, how am I going to serve God? What am I going to be able to do for God? But as a soldier for the country, I thought, well, I can be a soldier for God. And I did learn a lot of discipline. I certainly saved some money. They had a, an interesting method of paying us. And paying us meant they gave us half of the money into our bank account. The other half they put into our deposit. And when we finally finished our course, they gave us the bulk amount. And that bulk amount led to the next step in my life, which was to go to the Emmaus Bible College, because I already had the money for the fees of the Emmaus Bible so in 1961, I went to Emmaus with an absolute determination. I'm going to be serving God, and I am going to study God's Word, and I will absolutely apply myself to this. And for those two years, I really put my head down and studied hard, uh, not patting myself on the back, but I ended up as the ducks of the college. But more than that, I ended up with a, a good basic foundational knowledge of Scripture so that I could be prepared for serving God. And it was while I was there, I just finished an exam on John's Gospel. I think I got around 95 or 96% for that exam. But I then began to do it as a devotional thing. And as I was having it as a devotional thing, I came across chapter 20 of John's Gospel. I just passed the exam, as I say, I knew it all, but now in a different format, I was now applying it to my heart, my life in prayer. And on Sunday morning, this particular Sunday morning, I was reading chapter 20, and I read these verses. As the Father has sent me, and it stood out of the page like I can't believe, so send I. And I just said, Lord, I'll go. It was Sunday morning. I went to the assembly. I planned only to stay for communion at the first service and then leave. But as I looked, I saw people from, this was in Sydney, of course, people coming in through the door, Jim Fisher and his family. And I thought, I can't leave. I'll have to stop and say it. So I stopped. I missed my lunch. But I stopped to see Jim Fisher and family. But it wasn't really Jim Fisher and family that was the issue. God was in control. Because at the end of the service, the secretary, Lindsay's uh, counterpart, stood up and he said, oh, I've got some announcements. And he gave the announcements, which we all slept through. And then he said, as he went to sit down, he went to sit down, he said, Oh, excuse me. And he went to his briefcase and he pulled out a letter and he looked at us all and he says, This letter's come by sea mail. This letter arrived during the week and I should read it to you. And in the letter, it had come from India. And in that letter, it said something like this. We're getting too old. We need to retire. And our prayer is that at the Bible College in Sydney, there might be a student who's good in languages, who's good and devoted to God, committed to God, and who went on to describe, it says he needed to be married or engaged to be married, and we're looking for such a person to come and take our place here in India. Now, I stayed to see Jim Fisher, but that letter was for me. And I went to the secretary and I said, could I have the letter please? He said, yes, you can have it, I'm finished with it. And I rode away to India and that began a process. And I went home for, from leave to Glad and I said, Glad, God's called me to India. And she said, what about me? And I said, well, he'll call you too because we're engaged. 
So we went to a, a conference at Ashgrove where Lindsay grew up. I don't know whether he remembers that missionary conference. But there was a man there from Angola, a Mr. T.E. Wilson. I never met him before, heard about him. And here I was, I was a 22-year-old, 21-year-old, sorry. And Glad was at that time just 19. And we were engaged. And I know she was 20. And, and he stood up and he looked around. Before he began to speak, he said, if you're 21 and God has called you to the mission field, go. <laughs> and if you're to be the wife or are the wife of such a person, then you go. And Glad absolutely how did he know? Well, he didn't need to know. But that was such a confirming thing to us, both to myself and to Glad, that God had called us to the mission field. So we began to prepare. But in the meantime, I was, as I say, only very young. And Jeremiah spoke to me, or God did through Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. O sovereign Lord, I said, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a, a child or a youth. The Lord said, don't say that. Just say, or just understand, you must go to everyone that I send you. So we then prepared and uh, we were married in May 1963. And just five months later, we were on the Roma heading off for India as a pair of young newly married people. It was a, a really interesting journey and I could tell you lots of stories about it, but I've had enough. And arriving to India, we didn't really know what to expect. In 1963, India's population was, 100, was 450 million, but we just saw this in Bombay, because that's where we went, Bombay. And those apartments are just horrific. Every family lives in one, 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 one. So that's like a bee's hive, if you can see it there. And you've got 50 families living in that particular building, and sometimes there'll be 10 people in each of those little flats. They're just horrific. And then as we walked around, we found that people were living in little hovels on the side of the road, and she's washing the clothes, and he's, he's recycling boxes, and the children are just anywhere. And then people were coming in from the villages because there was nothing to do and nothing to eat. And they were setting up little camps on every kind of uh, culvert or anywhere where there was a wall that they could put up a couple of bamboo sticks. And, and uh, you can imagine how really difficult it was. Everywhere there were urchin kids trying to beg, trying to find a living. It was really difficult. But our main work was going to be in the villages because there are half a million villages in India. And when I say a village, I'm not talking about 20, 30, 50 people. I'm talking about a village had anything up to 10,000 people in it. And India then was 450 million. Today it's 1.25 billion people. What an incredible country it is in terms of the growth in those years. Agriculture was absolutely primitive. People were harvesting their crops and treading out the corn in the old biblical ways of uh, muzzle, not muzzling the ox. But after we did language study, and it took us probably two years to get on top of the language, uh, at least for me, by that time our Debbie was born and, and, uh, and that put an end to some of Glad's work. But we settled in a place called Belgaum. And Belgaum was a, a really 
interesting city. It was 300,000 people at that time. It was it had previously been a British centre, so there was a, a kind of a, a, a culture of British military stuff still in the place. And for us, it was a, a good centre. And I, you remember me telling you as we began First Corinthian studies how that others had tried to persuade me to set up an Emmaus Bible School office for our language, but how God intervened, because this is what I said, God directed us to go to Cumbum. And remember I told you that I travelled across to that place and I was met on the station by those elders who said to me, thank God you've come, thank God you've come, thank God you've come. And I had no idea, because I was a 24-year-old kid, and suddenly they said, the other preacher has died, you have, we sent you three telegrams asking you to come, and I had not received any telegram, I happened to be there as God's messenger. It was an amazing thing for me to be able to go around the corner, and they said to me, there are 300 elders sitting down over there with their Bibles open, waiting for you to teach them. You've got two messages every day, through the day, and then a gospel message every night for the next five. And suddenly I realized I had 15 messages to give with no opportunity to prepare anything at all. And if you recall that I told you that I thought well, there's one book that I could teach, and that's, guess what? First Corinthians. And so I taught First Corinthians, and that night when I preached the gospel, there were about 10 people who got saved. And it was like God put his seal upon my life, on this new ministry, not marking Emmaus courses and setting up an office, but rather doing this itinerant Bible teaching, traveling around. And so South India became a very interesting part. Now for those of you who are interested, Mohan lives just down there, and uh, Julie Cody is over here. Uh, Julie, uh, Julie, I mentioned Cody to Julie the other day. And so that's where Mohan is, and our children went to school here. They were 800 kilometers away to go to school. So it wasn't an easy thing for us to be in India. But for me, it was lots of tough travel. I had leaders' conferences, I had Bible classes in surrounding churches, and up to 3,000, 5,000 people would come for these classes from 100 k's around. Then they would go out, and largely the leaders would come, the teachers would come, and then they would go out and teach what I taught them in all the churches around. I went to many village churches, and uh, they were always a, a lovely experience, so warm, so friendly. I had all these teaching sessions, uh, that's uh, in the Telugu language, so a lot of work by translation, and they always had great joy when there was a new hall to be, uh, to be blessed or to be dedicated to God, to have someone like me to turn up to help them with the Bible teaching, it was lovely. We had many evidences of God's hand, but I want to tell you that India is this massive land of people, and today the work is being done not by missionaries like me, but by the Indian workers, and, and uh, if you listen to John tell of what God's doing in North India, and the work that he's been to see, you'll see that there's a harvest uh, being taken in now that is incredible. And yet, from the government's point of view in India, they wanted me to do some humanitarian work rather than just be a Bible teacher, because they weren't altogether happy about just missionaries with Bible teaching and spiritual work, so I ended up uh, taking over the leprosy hospital in Belgaum. It had been there since 1912, established by our early missionaries, and leprosy is a horrible thing. It's the stigma attached to leprosy rather than the disease itself. The stigma means that people hide away until the disease is really advanced, and by the time it's advanced, it's really hard to handle. It can be horrible, this particular leprosy 
is lepromatous leprosy. It's the only infectious kind of leprosy. Uh, only 5% of the people have got infectious leprosy. Uh, it's not a very infectious disease, but if you've got lepromatous leprosy, <clears throat> then the people nearest to you, your children particularly, are likely to be in trouble. This chap was a, a pest, he's a real pest. Because he no longer had active leprosy, but he lost his fingers because he used to pick them and make them bleed. He was a beggar in Bombay. And every six months he would come back to our hospital to get us to sort out all the ulcers and the infection on his fingers and things like that. But I went down into the wards one day and I found him coaching all our young leprosy sufferers on how to beg in Bombay. And it wasn't quite the kind of influence that I wanted anyone to see. This is the man, Rukmana, who came to me and he came with long, long hair. His face and uh, I know you're going to have your lunch shortly, but never mind. We took a, a hundred maggots out of his face. His face was so completely affected. That's why his face is all sunken in and just a complete and utter mess. And he's the man that when he turned up and I saw him in such a state, I just put my arm around his shoulder and he fell immediately at my feet and grabbed my feet and he burst into tears and he said, you are the first person to put a finger on me for the last 25 years. No one has touched me in 25 years. And the lovely thing about Jesus is that he touched the leper. You remember that? You remember that? He touched the leper. And it makes you realize what the blessing of touch in a circumstance like this. Oh, we had some lovely old ladies. These two old ladies are crippled and blinded by leprosy. Look at their hands. I don't think these are very clear pictures. But their hands are crippled, their, their faces are, and yet they, they are the joy of the Lord they had. They used to sing to me every time I came to see them. And they would be talking about the first thing you'll see is the face of Jesus. That's what we're waiting for, the face of Jesus. But during these things, in, we proved that God could provide. There were times when we had no money and God provided in a miraculous way. Long story, I could tell you that story, maybe over one day. God did meet all our needs. But you, you, sometimes God's plans mean trials for us. And I've shared with some of you already the fact that we lost our little baby boy, Robbie. Beautiful little boy. Ladies, he was 10 pound 10. He was a beautiful baby boy. 10 pound 10. And with what joy, with what joy we welcomed him. Robbie, Robert William loved him. What a boy. And then he just faded away. I remember sending a telegram from the village and in those days it was all by Morse code from the villagers and they would tap, 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 and send it off to the headquarters. And my telegram said, Robert William Bourne looks like his granddad on the 18th of September. But then he died next day in the afternoon. Now India has no funeral parlors, there's no you just have to bury him. So this little boy, this beautiful boy, was put in an apple box. And we put the apple box in the back of our car seat the next day and drove fifty miles to the funeral, to the cemetery. You have to have a Christian cemetery. So we took him to the Christian cemetery. 
know, that little apple box was there. But before that, I sat down when he died. That sedated gland. But I went out and I told you, I think, that I sat on a well and I shook my fist in God's face. And I said, why, why, why? Why? Why would you take this beautiful child? Look at this son, this, this child I have. You've taken him. And, and I was so, so, so upset. And while I was there shaking my fist in God's hand, an Indian man came and sat beside me and said, huh, so you're one of us now, are you? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, our babies die all the time. And we think that's because we're bad people. But you're a missionary. And your babies died. You're not a bad person, are you? Well. And I said, I'm sorry. And I, of course, repented toward God. That totally, utterly changed the attitude of the people towards me in terms of my ministry. They welcomed, listened in ways they never but still, our hearts were breaking, and just then we got a telegram from Australia. Because I had gone, as we took our baby to the, to the burial ground, I'd actually stopped at the main centre. And I went up to the telegraph centre to send a telegram to say he'd died. And as I was, went to the guy, I said, I want to send an express telegram to Australia. And he said, Australia? And I said, yes, I want to say that my baby died. He said, what, this baby? And he had in his hand the previous telegram that I'd sent. He says, I was just about to send that one to Australia. So you don't want me to send that one? No, I said, I want you to send this one. That Robbie was born on the 18th, taken on the 19th. Please pray for us. You see, God intervenes in that. God held up that telegram so that instead of us getting celebratory telegrams and messages, we suddenly got encouragement, prayers and things like that. And they simply sent this particular message to us. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. Now, I've told this story. Some of you have heard it before. Eight years later, God gave us a well. Two years later, we were back in Australia. And God gave us another little boy, Jeffrey. You've seen him, some of you. And we went back to India. And eight years after the first baby died, I was out in the village preaching. In the meantime, we had been dealing with this couple, Dr. Sandy. He was a brilliant military surgeon. He ended up as a neurosurgeon. He ended up as the major general in the Indian military. But his wife, Kitty, was an Anglo-Indian, and he, a Brahmin, Anglo-Indian, I mean, that didn't ever happen, but it did happen. They loved each other. And she became a great friend, she became a believer, she was baptized, she was in the assembly, and she was, but they couldn't have any children. Eventually, they adopted a little baby boy, gorgeous little fellow, and they were so thrilled and we were thrilled with them. But I was out this eight years later, out preaching in the village, and I was in the middle of my sermon when I saw one of the lads from our church coming through the back door, and he was saying, stop, 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 I've got to talk to you, stop. And so I stopped preaching and he came forward he said, the Bishwas baby has died. The baby has died. You've got to come. So I just left that village and rode home. It was three o'clock in the morning and I entered my house. And would you believe, there on the coffee table in my house was a little apple box. And in that apple box 
was a little baby boy, and that little baby boy, next day was in the back seat of my car, and I was taking my baby boy, that baby boy, to the same funeral burial ground as my baby boy. Well, that was really difficult, except that after the burying their little child, I went for a walk with Dr. Sandy, and he was angry, 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 so angry, saying, I went to my officer's mess to tell them my baby was born, and they said, forget about it, get drunk, man, get drunk, there's lots of babies out there, he wasn't even your child. Find another one. Get a dozen of them. He said, they don't understand. He was my son, my son. I'd given my heart, my life, my name to this child. And he's dead and no one understands. And I said, Sandy, I understand. What would you know? I said, well, look here. And I pointed to the grave of my baby. And I said, I oh, you lost a child. Yes, we lost a son eight years ago. And he's buried there. Yours is buried here. He said, well, you, didn't, you do understand. The amazing thing is that from that moment on, Sandy's heart was open for us to share with him what God could do in his life. We moved on. He got transferred. His wife kept talking to us and writing to us. And then I remember... A beautiful letter when she says, Bill and Glad, I'm writing to tell you that Sandy is now a believer in Jesus. The cost of our baby, the saving of a soul. You see, God makes the mistakes. Sometimes the trials he puts us through are really difficult. But there's always a reason, a purpose. And when Glad and I went to India in 2006, I took her back before her disease had got too bad. And that's Dr. Sandy. But would you believe that Kitty died of Alzheimer's? And Kitty, he told me, sang all the time around the house initially. And then she slept a lot. And right now my sweet lad is sleeping a lot. I'm reliving what he's been through. It's like our two lives are intertwined, amazingly by what God has done. Well, God directed us to leave India. And I, I mean, I was 37 at the time. I was in my prime. I had the language. I had respect. I had authority. I was able to go here and everywhere. And people were really responding. And people were being saved. And God seemed to say to me on one occasion, and it was again a circumstance out of my control, one of our missionary ladies had cancer and I was like the gopher man around the place and I had to go to Bangalore to get her a visa so she could go and get cancer treatment in England and then come back to India. So I caught the train to Bangalore, it was a night train, got there early morning, went to the government office, got her visa, got it really early and then I had to wait till the night train to go back again. So what to do? So I went to the Bible Society because I heard a new Bible had been published of special purpose for India and people like India who have English as a second language. The Good News Bible, a lot of people don't like the Good News Bible, but if you understand that it was not intended for you, it's intended for people who have a very limited knowledge of English. It has a basic vocabulary of just a thousand words, and
and then a few extra words added with a glossary to explain what a disciple is, what an apostle is, what baptism is. That's in the back. That's the glossary. But the, the language is very simple. It's for, for people who have very limited knowledge of English. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll buy one. I hear it's out. So I sat in a park and I read. And I started in Matthew chapter 1 and I read through Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then I came to John. And I, what I read in John was this. The works the Father has given me to finish. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Paul and Barnabas sailed back to Antioch from whence they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had finished. And this again was just like, go, I'm sending you as the Father sent me. This now was hitting me saying, look at the work. And I looked at the assembly. There were now Indian elders. They didn't need me. Look at the leprosy hospital. I had put in an Indian manager. They didn't need me. And then the crunch was when a young girl came to me, a young mum, and she said, brother, will you please pray for me? I said, sure. But are you praying? Oh, no, I don't bother to pray because your prayers are worth more than mine. And I thought to myself, aha, uh -huh, something's wrong here. Where they think that I have closer connection to God than they have, that I'm becoming a stumbling block to these people. They need to learn God, uh, learn to trust the living God as I've had to learn to trust Him. So these things, are the three things. So as Glenn and I always do when we face this kind of circumstance, we went off to a mango grove and we, we fasted and prayed for the whole day, searching the scriptures. And again and again, these scriptures were coming to mind. You have finished the work. Look at the work. You've finished the work that God has given you to do. So we prayed and arrived home to our house. And there was a letter, a letter from Australia. Have you ever considered returning to Australia and working in some of the churches in a pastoral Bible teaching capacity? It was just an amazing thing to come back from that mangrove group and find an opportunity presented to us. Well, that happened, and with many tears we left India and we went on. Now, there's a long, long story to tell, but we began this new journey in Australia, and uh, let me very quickly run through a few slides without making much comment. See, this is the thing. It's God. He's the living God. He precedes us. He's always there ahead of us, and He follows us. And we've always had his hand of blessing in spite of our mistakes and the things that we do wrong. So we've served God in Perth, in Adelaide, and, and now for the last 17 years we've been here in Budrum. I'm not able to do very much now because of Glad. And that's part of our journey with God that I'm going to be able to share with you maybe next week a little bit of that. But it's been a, a wonderful journey because my God is the living God. And your God is the living God. And, and when you look back over your life and understand that His hand is upon you for blessing, His hand is upon you for good, then you can truly trust Him. And so I was in Craigmore. We were there for 15 years, 10 years, uh, very full time. Then I've had ministry in many different countries in the world. And I, I've been back to India eight or nine times. Uh, lovely opportunities to go back. And this was one of the thrills I had when I went back. That girl there, can you see the one on, the, on your right-hand side? She came to our hospital when she was just a 13-year-old girl, having been kicked out by her husband, kicked out by her family, and kicked out by everybody, and told to kill herself, throw herself in a well, because she had leprosy. 
Well, she was with us for eight years in our hospital until finally the day came when I had to say to her, look, I'm sorry, you have to go because you no longer have leprosy. And she was the one who fell at my feet and grabbed my feet, and that's a way of a, a major appealing in India, ultimate appeal is to grab somebody's feet. And she grabbed my feet and she said, please, please, I have no one. And I said, would you go and get your Bible? Because we taught her to read and write. We'd given her an opportunity to work. And uh, I said, bring your Bible. She brought her Bible. I said, would you turn to Hebrews chapter 13? I want you to look at verses 5 and 6. And she read verse 5 and 6. And if you know Hebrews 13, verse 5 and verse 6, it says something like this. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I will never leave you or forsake you. And I've never forgotten the smile on her face, from tears to an incredible smile, where she said, then I can go, can't I? The Lord is my helper. So when I took Glad back in 2006, she heard I was coming, and she came... And she said, I've come to tell you that the Lord has been with me. This is my son. This is his new bride. God gave me a Christian husband. And what he promised me, he has done. You can imagine the joy I felt to see this lady come back, no longer grabbing my feet and pleading with me to be something. But she had proved in her life too that her God is the living God. Friends, that's really our story with God. It's not about us, it's about God, the kind of God that you can trust with your life. You can trust your future to Him. You can trust everything to God. And He never makes mistakes. And a lot of people look at us today and say, well, what a huge mistake. No, God doesn't make mistakes. That little story that, uh, that uh, Malcolm showed you, I mean, I knew that Good Life were doing something. I hadn't even seen it in myself. I only knew they were doing it. Amazing. That will go to the homes around here. When I take that out on the bike now, people come to me from all over. We saw you on television. We said, and, and there's opportunities God's giving us now in ways we never thought. So I'm sorry to have kept you a little bit late. But next week, the next exciting episode of <laughs> Our Journey with God. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a wonderful God. Peter says he cares for you. What a beautiful thing for us to know. To have a God who cares for us. And even though we make the most horrific mistakes, and we stumble and fall and we doubt and we fear, yet you precede us. You follow us. Your hand of blessing is upon us. And you are able, even able to turn our mistakes into wonderful victories for you. You're a great God. And we love you. Lord, what a privilege it is to be your people. What a privilege it is to serve you. And we pray that you will encourage all of our hearts to realize that you are truly the living God. We just want to thank you for your wonderful blessing. In our Saviour's name. Well, I understand there'll be refreshments on the veranda. It's different. It used to be downstairs.
that's on the deck now. <laughs> refreshments on the deck. So please stay and enjoy them and, uh, and come and have refreshments.